On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, we take a test drive in an electric ute. Dairy farmers and farmers would be really interested to know that there might be a possibility of getting electric vehicles that will actually do what they need them to do and have large towing capacities. You know, we could actually have the options of reducing carbon emissions and saving money on diesel. And could you taste 60 bulbs of garlic? Mm, How do we prepare ourselves for it? We just, we, you can't. We just throw ourselves in. <laughs> yeah, it, it, no, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm reeking of garlic. And when I, when I go home, it's just coming out. Of me. <laughs> yeah. A very brave job indeed, tasting garlic. That story coming up. And also a test ride in a brand new electronic ute. All the details about that shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, which does mean Richard Bailey will be along with all the details of yesterday's Power Renner Wiener sale. Also coming up today, we'll look at where the beef market prices are and hear from one producer who's had a record year, but things have settled back with lower beef prices. Plus, uh, we'll check that weather. Very hot, very hot conditions. And your thoughts on any issues via the text line. 0438922936 is that number. 0438 922936. First up today, power plant workers, miners and industry professionals have gathered in Sydney to talk about the transition away from fossil fuels. The Mining and Energy Union are calling on the federal government to create a national transition authority to support workers. Reporter Grace O'Day spoke to members after the meeting. I think the big problem for people in our industry is the replacement that comes that is on its way, which is renewables. All of that will be built It'll all get commissioned. It'll be fully operational before we close any of our plants down. All of the people that work in the power industry and all of the the mining sector that supports us will continue to to supply the state until we get to a point where our replacement is already up and running and there'll be no jobs for us to move across to. That was Scott King, an assistant power plant operator at Araring Power Station in Lake Macquarie, talking to me outside the meeting. Chris Bowen's talked about how we can move to... You know, there's great potential for construction jobs and, you know, once we move to a decentralised market and we put renewables in everywhere, that's fantastic. But you're talking about a bunch of people who, when they walk out and go to look for these jobs, those jobs won't be there. You know, they'll, they'll be moving to jobs where they're, they're wiping the panels at a solar farm instead of providing electricity the way that they've done it in the past. And, you know, the wage drop for those people, they'll, they'll drop to... You know, if they're lucky, they'll drop to 50% of what they're on now. Scott King talking there about the Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen's plan for an energy transition. For me, I took a job in this industry knowing that, well, knowing potentially that I had a job for life. Um, at the moment, that's been snatched out from underneath me. That has a big impact on myself and my family. Um, what our future holds for us in another five years, we don't know. WA coal miner Wayne Loxton lives two hours south of Perth in the mining town of Collie. He says he's one of the lucky ones as he's coming up to retirement age and probably won't be around when the mines shut down. It's the, the youth of the town that I'm worried about because if we lose all our big industry, we've got to search out for other industry. We have the mining up north as well in WA. So a lot of our youth will go fly and fly out and, and that's probably not a good scenario because it affects the community, everything 
depletes itself. Sport, you know, entertainment, families, schools, everything. So that's the, the issue that I'm worried about is, is keeping the youth in our little town. Currently, is there any opportunities for upskilling for younger miners or younger people in the industry to help with that transition? We're pretty lucky at Muja Power Station because it's government-owned. So the, the transition bubble there is huge. We can do anything from like beekeeping to be admin, you can do a dog and ticket, you can go and be a truck driver. So it's, it's open slather, reasonably. They're not going to give you a helicopter's pilot ticket, but for the youth, it's awesome. Yeah, we are very lucky in West Australia on that part of it for sure. Mining and Energy Union President Anthony Ma said a federal transition authority is needed to support energy workers as we decarbonise. And what would you like to see in a federal transition authority? We think it should be uh, tripartite so that it has business representatives, union representatives, government and community representatives. Um, there are a couple of uh, local um, authorities set up by state governments and it, it needs to be bottom-up as well as top-down um, uh, because central bodies don't have a mortgage on with wisdom, as we've found over the years. So, you know, it is a big challenge, but um, it's, it's every bit as essential as setting up government bodies to drive investment in renewables or setting up government um, legislative frameworks to assist business to reduce their emissions. This is another job that needs to be done to complete the picture. Because um, the alternative is that um, you uh, leave devastated regions with multi-generational unemployment, social dysfunction, um, and uh, I'm yet to meet anybody that thinks that's a good idea, um, and it's to be avoided at all costs. Uh, and it basically comes down to this. Do we let the burden of a structural shift fall on a particular region and group of workers or do we share the burden? That's Mining and Energy Union President Tony Ma speaking to reporter Grace O'Day about the transition to renewables after power plant workers, miners and industry professionals, professionals at least, gathered in Sydney to talk about the transition away from fossil fuels. Well, staying on renewables and the first fully electric ute is in Australia and on a tour to show farmers what it can do. But with only a 333-kilometre range and a one-tonne towing capacity... Is this LDV ute fit for purpose or just a gateway to future technology? To learn more about it, Warwick Long went for a test drive. It's big metallic blue and the best way to describe it is it kind of looks like a Hilux. This is a very different kind of ute though. The first EV ute in Australia that people can buy. It has around a six-figure price tag and it's about to go on a regional tour to show people what utes like this can do. With it, with the keys in his hand, is Ben Lever. He's a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens, which describes itself as a community organisation campaigning for more clean energy and clean transport. So can this ute, or other EV utes, stand the test of Australian agriculture? Let's go and find out. So this is the first commercially available electric ute in Australia. Um, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were saying that electric utes didn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, here it is right now. I'm touching it as we speak. Looks pretty real to me. That's it. It's no unicorn. It's right here. Ben, tell me a little bit about this car. It's got a huge battery on it, um, about 88 kilowatts. And, you know, it it's basically can do the things that a ute can do, but cleaner. Should I be scared? Definitely not. Should we go for a drive? Let's do it.
we're in the car at the moment. Ben's got it. Ben, it, before we start the car, it's a bit like a normal ute on the inside, probably a little bit more modern looking with a bit of a, a computer type display, but that's about it. Yeah, that's it. It's very much going to be like any other ute that you're used to, except it's going to be much cleaner for the environment and much better for your hip pocket, uh, not having to fill up with your petrol all the time. And I notice you've, you've got a key. No, that's it. Um, it's you know, basic turnkey situation. Um, no, no, nothing fancy. I'm just getting the job done. All right, I better put my seatbelt on and then we should go. It's pretty smooth as we just drive off. You just turn off and go. The first thing I notice, Ben, is it's pretty quiet. Yeah, it's very quiet. It actually emits a little bit of a musical note um, just to, so that you can hear it coming for safety reasons. Otherwise, it'll be totally silent. And in terms of the power in it as well, how fast is it? Oh, there we go. I can feel that. Yeah, got a little bit of um, acceleration to it. Um, you know, quite, quite a bit of torque. Um, the beautiful thing about an electric motor is that all of the torque is available to you as soon as you put your foot down. It's not just a particular part of the rev range, like with a combustion engine. So really does pick up and go whenever you want it to. So it almost goes faster immediately than a normal car. That's right. It just accelerates straight off the line with no hassles whatsoever. I could feel that. My, you basically put my bum back in the seat when you put the foot down then. That's it. it will, if you put the foot down, it will go like the clappers. How much battery life does this car have? So this has 88 kilowatt hours, um, which for this car is, is about uh, 330 kilometres is the estimated range. Emily Crawford's with us in the back of the car with us. So I'm going to turn around and try and stretch my arm out towards you, Emma. Emily, you're off a, a dairy farm close to here. Is it exciting to be in a car like this or think about technology like this for your farm? Uh, yes, Warwick, it is. I think dairy farmers and farmers would be really interested to know that there might be a possibility of getting electric vehicles that will actually do what they need them to do and have large towing capacities and then, you know, we could actually have the options of reducing carbon emissions and saving money on diesel. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think it's important for farmers to be looking at things like electric vehicles and, and moving away from fossil fuels? Uh, well, I think all farmers feel pretty strongly that we want to try to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, you know, we've all experienced floods and hailstorms and lots of adverse weather here in the last few months. And so I think everyone wants to try and improve that situation. and. The transport industry is one of the major emitters in Australia and I think Australian farmers would like to be a part of that journey. Ben Levers with us as we're cruising through uh, downtown Shepherd and now we're almost making our way in, into town. Ben, a couple of things I wanted to touch off. One, one towing. Can you tow with a ute like this? Absolutely you can. Um, there's a tow ball that's uh, one of the options for this vehicle um, from the factory and it's got a, a thousand kilo uh, capacity to tow. Does that affect your battery life greatly? Yeah, so obviously the more the more weight you're carrying, uh, the more work the engine has to do, so it does reduce the, the range a bit, um, but it's, it is definitely capable of it. Do you know by how much? Like, does it halve your, your battery life, or a third, or, or three quarters? What? Yeah, not, not too sure exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably something to, to work out as well. Emily was talking then about the options. This is the first commercially available 
uh, ute, electric ute in Australia. There are others overseas. What's holding back other car manufacturers from introducing utes like this to Australia? So in a lot of our peer nations, um, the other sort of advanced economies, they have fuel efficiency standards that require the car companies to bring in a range of vehicles, some of which are, are much more cleaner and efficient, and that includes a, a good mix of electric vehicles as well. Because Australia doesn't really have these standards, we're at the bottom of the queue, and um, we just... Jump in that lane while you're talking about this, Sorry. if you can. The car manufacturers are prioritising those other nations for their electric vehicles. Because they've only got a limited supply, they put them where they have to put them because of the, the rules. So because we are at the back of the queue, we don't get the variety of models and we also get a very limited run, which usually sells out in you know, a matter of minutes in some cases. What are the, the major criticisms for a car like this at the moment? Um, so a lot of people are really concerned about the range, um, and that's one of the reasons that we are so keen to see these other models that do have a, a larger battery and longer range uh, coming into the country, as well as seeing the, the charging network continue to roll out. Um, the other big one is the upfront cost, um, and that's one of the reasons that we're keen to see you know more affordable models that are available in Europe um, be brought into the country, and to see a little bit more competition to help drive down those prices. What does a car like this cost? So this one is nearly $100,000, but if we look in New Zealand, it's about $20,000 cheaper because they have those uh, standards that are driving the prices down. So it's a really clear example of, of how the right policies can make a big difference to uh, individual uh, buyers. So this same car is almost $20,000 cheaper in New Zealand? That's right. This being the first in Australia, is this, for want of a better term, can electric utes only get better from here? Is this literally the, the base of what we will see and we will see improvements from here? That's it. This is really the, the jumping off point, the, the leading edge of, of the utes. Um, they're only going to get bigger, better, uh, more range, uh, more mod cons. It's only going to go up from here. <laughs> no one will probably hear it because the car's so quiet, but we'll turn it off and jump out after a drive like that. Thanks, thanks for taking us for a cruise. No worries. Thanks for coming along. So Emily, you're a dairy farmer in Chatura. We've been for the drive now. What do you make of it? Oh, I think it's really exciting. It's a great vehicle and just seems like a normal ute to me. Uh, and I think it's just really exciting if we're starting to see them coming into the country. Um, as a farmer, I'd like to get an electric vehicle and I'd like them, you know, machinery and vehicles to be electric so we can start reducing our carbon emissions on farm and saving on our diesel bills. How long do you think it'll take before you see a ute like this one on your farm? I don't know. This might be a ute that we'd buy, but um, you know we need something that's probably equivalent to a Land Cruiser or an F-150, something that we're going to tow, something that's versatile. Uh, and I think you know all farmers need to make their own choices and we want to be able to choose. We don't just want to have the one ute. That's Emily Crawford, Tatura Dairy Farmer and member of the Farmers for Climate Action, speaking there to Warwick Long. And you also heard from Ben Lever, who's a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens, which is an independent community organisation campaigning for more clean energy and clean transport testing, road testing, that uh, fully electric ute first in Australia. Well, coming up on the Country Hour, the start of a local magic mushroom industry in the country and tasting garlic. This week on Landline, devastation in WA's Kimberley region, rebuilding in central New South Wales, and the upside of flooding, revived wetlands for birds. It feels very special, I think, when you come into these places and 
you know, we have sort of between 30 and 50,000 breeding pairs in here. You're maybe the only person that these birds have seen so far. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 0438922936, our text line number. And uh, George on the text line says, Tony, very strange how the politicians and unions are so concerned about coal and coal-fired power workers and communities, but the same showed scant regard when thousands of forest workers and communities in Tasmania were thrown to the wolves in the late 2000s. As an ex-forest worker, it's typical of how industry policy operates in the country. No foresight, just political opportunism. Thank you for that, George. 0438922936, that text line number. Well, a company in Western Australia's southwest has been given the green light to start trialling magic mushrooms to treat depression. And as Georgia Hargreaves explains, if everything goes to plan, the company will also be the first in Australia to legally grow this sort of mushroom. Magic mushrooms have been used for thousands of years for medicinal and ceremonial purposes by Indigenous people throughout the world. In recent times, they're probably more known because of their use at festivals and parties. But magic mushrooms are a psychedelic drug that contains an ingredient called psilocybin. And some scientists believe it could be used to help treat certain types of mental illness. UWA Professor Sean Hood is the principal researcher for what will be WA's first clinical trial using psilocybin to help people who have treatment-resistant depression. He says patient welfare will be the number one priority. Look, I think uh, with any new medication, part of our job is to minimise any of the risks and to do it in a controlled and careful environment. Hence, the way we are dosing in this particular study is we have two well-trained clinical psychologists that will be with the patient throughout the whole day of the dosing to follow their dosing and any responses they have to that. It'll be undertaken in a in a set environment at Perkins um, South Hospital Facility. They'll be monitored throughout that whole time. We, of course, have um, contingencies for any adverse reactions or any emergencies, etc. So, yes, it'll be highly controlled. This is a novel medication that we're really understanding that works for depression, but we, you know, we've struggled really to see what the role of these medications are. And part of our job is to see how this can be safely administered to patients in a way that can be replicated in other clinics, um, hopefully down the line. The company sponsoring this clinical trial is Reset Mind Sciences, which is based in WA's southwest. CEO Sean Duffy says they'll be importing the psilocybin for this research from Canada, but the long-term goal is to produce and cultivate the drug right here in Western Australia. And if that happens, they'll be the first company in Australia to legally grow magic mushrooms. There's two ways you can source psilocybin for use in in a medical sense. One is synthetically produced, so so manufactured in a lab. They're just the, the molecule that's within the magic mushrooms. Or the other way is to grow mushrooms and then extract the psilocybin from the mushrooms. So we are, as a company, we will be growing mushrooms with a view to producing pharmaceutical grade psilocybin, but we're not ready to do that yet. But for the moment, we'll be purchasing synthetic psilocybin from Canada for use in our trial. Okay, how long will it be, do you think, before you'll be ready to start actually commercially growing these mushrooms in in WA? Uh, Well, we will be growing them within weeks. We have built a special purpose grow room for the mushrooms, which will be housed at an undisclosed location, but um, 
that we have all the licensing in place to do that. So the grow room is in its final commissioning stages now and will start operations within the coming weeks. Then once we have uh, started growing mushrooms, it's a separate piece of work to start then extracting the, the psychoactive ingredient psilocybin and producing that to pharmaceutical grade to uh, to the TGA standards. That's the CEO of Reset Mind Sciences, Sean Duffy, ending that report by Georgia, Georgia Hargreaves. On the trial using magic mushrooms to treat depression and actually growing those mushrooms legally. And more information on that story, ABC Online. Well, judging food or wine competitions can be a pleasurable experience. Tasting wine? Yep. Tasting cheese? Definitely. Tasting ice cream? Wow. What about tasting garlic and no less than around 60 bulbs? Ahead of this weekend's Cunha Garlic Festival, I caught up with one man who's doing just that. So hi, I'm Colin Langridge and um, I, I was the founder of the Cunha Garlic Festival and I've been involved in it since the beginning. This year I'm uh, judging the garlic competition along with two other uh, judges and I'm also having a stall there selling garlic. Okay, now, Colin, tell me, how do you judge garlic? We judge it three ways, by presentation, how it looks, by taste, which uh, gives everyone a shudder normally when they think of that, (laughs) tasting lots of garlic, and by uh, health and hygiene, so to see if it's got any disease or not. And you mentioned taste there. Some garlic I taste, it's it's like chilli and others are completely different. So what are you looking for with the taste? Yeah, so it it does depend on the variety. They're all different and some are mild and some are spicy. I suppose we don't want anything that's off-putting. I guess we're really, on one level, we're looking for things that are not off-putting in a way because sometimes if something's diseased, it usually tastes a bit off and and that'll alert us to that. But then if it comes down to just choosing between two, um, two entries and we're just going, is it this one or that one? And uh, sometimes it could can be the taste uh, that, that really breaks it. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's a subjective thing. Sometimes it's just too spicy and just burns you. And other times it's... Uh, it's too mild or it might might even have a muddy taste or something. So sometimes the garlic can look great but uh, doesn't taste that good. So how do you prepare yourself for the tasting and, and how many bulbs would you taste? Uh, usually there's uh, about 60 entries and um, if something's obviously diseased, we uh, don't taste it because it's not going to be competitive. But uh, we still would taste most of those 60 entries and we just take a thin slice off and just really dab it on our tongue and just enough to get a bit of a flavour. And and then between uh, tastings or uh, particularly between rounds, uh, we uh, would wash our mouth out with a glass of, uh, you know, a drink of uh, like a lemon drink or something to uh, cleanse our palate. Uh, hmm, how do we prepare ourselves for it? We just, we, you can't. We just throw ourselves in. <laughs> yeah, it, it, no, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm reeking of garlic. And when I, when I go home, it's just coming out of me. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But you also make the trophies. What's, what do the trophies look like and how do you make them? Okay, so, um, so I, I'm an artist as well and uh, sculpture is my uh, main area of practice. So um, I early on, I decided to make the trophies through uh, taking a cast 
of a uh, or doing a mould and then casting from the mould a uh, resin garlic replica of garlic and uh, then painting it gold and uh, we've continued that and I've updated those trophies over time and, uh, and there's one large one for the best in show and then there are there are other smaller ones for all the other minor prizes. I got to say personally when I plant one bulb of garlic and then come back months later and see the plant the finished product it just amazes me. I think, how good are you? But it's the plant that does it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's easy to grow. So easy to grow. You just and and from one uh, bulb of garlic, you can get. Uh, you might get ten close. So you might get ten plants from just one bulb. And and so I always am impressed by that. But um, it is easy to grow. You just stick it in the ground in um, April, May. Away it goes, and and it uh, yeah it takes care of itself really, and and things don't seem to eat it either. You know, other animals, pests don't seem to eat it either. So yeah, it's a great crop to grow. Now this uh, this season's garlic crop, how would you describe it, and what are you hearing from other growers? Because you are a grower too. Yes, I am a grower, and I'll, I'll have a stall there tomorrow. It's it's turned out well, but um, I was really concerned back in November. We got quite a lot of rain. And uh, it, was, it was a wet November, and uh, it it just caused the ground to be quite uh, moist, and that can cause uh, problems in terms of disease, uh, soil-borne soil uh, fungal disease that just really likes that warm temperature and the wet conditions. So I think that challenged a lot of people, but um, mine's come through okay, actually. We got it out okay and, and uh, cured it. And so I'm pretty happy, in in fact, with my uh, crop. Yeah, it's gone well. So I think that's the case for most people. They were concerned, but they've managed it. It's come through okay. Now, I believe that the um, the recent or the last uh, festival, there was not an overabundance of garlic to be had. No, no, and that's because of the season once again. You, you just can't control it. If uh, you know if the conditions uh, make the crop fail, they make the crop fail. There's nothing you can do about that, and that's the problem with, uh, I guess, with running a festival that's um, focused on one plant or one, one or you know one just one thing. And uh, if if it fails, that crop doesn't do well that year. Then uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the festival. I think also there's um, there are not a lot of uh, growers in that medium. The mid uh, size of growing in terms of, there, I think there are quite a lot of uh, large growers in Tasmania, but um, and there are a lot of people who just grow in their backyard. But there are not many in that mid mid range, and they're the people who'd be selling at the markets or, or at the festival. So, it'd be great if uh, if that built up in the now community, more people growing, say about a thousand plants, something like that. That's what you need for a stall. Okay, so you don't expect this weekend to hear people saying, "Where's the garlic?" No, there's no, there's they've uh, they really listened last year to festival organisers and they've they got gone about um, ensuring that there will be enough garlic. Okay, well, good luck with the festival and hope it goes oh, well. Thank you. And it's going to be yeah, warm. I think it's going to it's going to be really warm. So bring a hat and put some sunscreen on, I definitely will be doing that. And good luck with the yeah, tasting. But it'll, it'll be, yeah, oh, thank you. That'll be tomorrow, yes. It'll be fine. We, I always enjoy it seeing what people have brought forth, and uh, it's amazing. It's so uh, beautiful to see fresh garlic. It's great.
Colin Langridge, the man who makes the Golden Garlic statues for the winners of the Acuna Garlic Festival this weekend. The man who has to taste around 60 bulbs of garlic as well. David in Hobart asks, will there be smoked garlic for sale there? I'm, I don't know, David, but I'm assuming there could be. Or well, the black garlic too. So there's plenty of garlic there this weekend. All right, coming up on the country hour, steady as you go, beef prices. We also check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has marked the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine by urging Vladimir Putin to stop the war. He says the invasion's illegal and immoral. The federal government's announced it will commit to an additional $33 million in military aid to Ukraine. Tasmania's Child Sexual Abuse Commission of Inquiries released a research report which includes the views of 59 young people with experience in state institutions. The report found many young people had reservations about adults and organisations' capacity to understand and respond to their safety concerns and that they wanted to be involved in developing more child-responsive strategies. A bushfire is threatening lives and homes in Gawler and Adelaide's northern fringes. The fire service has issued an emergency warning telling people it's too late to leave and to take shelter now. Forecast high fire danger tomorrow has prompted Tasmania's Parks and Wildlife Service to close the Adamsfield Conservation Area in the state's southwest. And Tasmania's been thumped by WA on the fourth and final day of their shield clash at Belreve Oval. The Tigers resumed at eight for 101 in their second inning this morning, needing 403 runs for an unlikely victory, but were bowled out inside the first half an hour of play for just 120 more news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. Any rainfall at all anywhere? No, none None as you'd expect um, for today since 9am or yesterday to, to 9am. Okay, and we know it's pretty warm. Uh, what's, uh, what's the outlook for uh, later today and heading into the weekend? Yeah, the warm air will stick around. Uh, uh, through today and into tomorrow, it's uh, looking like it'll it'll linger a little longer than expected. Uh, the the models changed their tune a little bit and installed the the front coming through by three or four hours. So um, the rain that's coming, the showers that are coming through as the front comes through tomorrow will be a little later, probably in afternoon, later in the afternoon for most people. Um, so the, the the story is the. Um, the front will come through and affect the west of the state first and then move that'll be in the later in the morning and then move over the rest of the the state during the afternoon and, and to, into the evening so most places have um, a shower or two or showers on their forecast with a maximum temperature tomorrow around the high 20s or 30 mark because the air's not clearing out very as soon as as we were expecting and um and after that, we get back into mild temperatures around 20 degrees for most places for the next, uh, till up till Tuesday or Wednesday when another cold front comes through. Okay. Warnings. What have we got? We've got a strong wind warning today for eastern waters from St Helens Point to South East Cape and western waters from Low Rocky Point to Stanley. Tomorrow, there's a strong wind warning for eastern, southern and western waters from the northern tip of Flinders all the way around clockwise to Stanley, but not including Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. There's also a severe heatwave warning current for the Ferno Islands, the southeast and western districts for the three-day period for Thursday to Saturday. OK, Michael, and the coastal waters and swell? Yeah, sure. In the western south today, there's a southwesterly at around one metre, 
Tomorrow it's going to build to one to one and a half metres southwesterly, and in the afternoon increase further to one and a half to two metres, and even up to two to three metres in the northwest in the evening. In the north, there's a westerly swell less than a metre for both that, for today and tomorrow. And in the east, there's a southerly swell up to a metre, um, uh, around a metre actually for, for both days. The OBS around the Wave Rider Boys OBS, Cape Sorrell's at 1.1 and Mariah Island's at 1.4 metres. Terrific. Thanks, Michael. Cheers, Tony. Michael Conway from the Bureau. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The beef prices have come back a fair bit since this time last year. We'll talk about that very shortly and uh, how one farmer fared with those huge prices. And also Richard Bailey will be along uh, with the livestock markets. But when it does come to deciding what food goes into your shopping trolleys each week, what are your top priorities? Nutrition, affordability or convenience? Nate Kinch tackles this from the point of view of a practical socio-technology ethicist, which basically means he helps governments and food corporations be a positive influence. And he says stories are key to getting people to care more about their food and where it comes from. The cost of living is going up like crazy. The cost of food is it's bonkers. And so I, I just want to recognise that sometimes these discussions come from a position of privilege. So for the most part, people want food that they connect to, that brings back good memories, that tastes amazing, that they think is going to be good for them. For a lot of people that are busy, they, they kind of want it to be easy and they might have kids that they're running around. So, so those, those things around price and convenience and utility, fundamental. And sometimes when we talk about these bigger picture discussions about how do we make the food system better, how do we tackle big issues like sustainability, we sometimes forget that at the end of the day, folks are going in going, can I afford that thing? Are my kids going to eat it? Are my fussy kids going to eat it? So we've got to ground a lot of the work that we're doing in that stuff. But when we go beyond that, when you walk into a, a grocery store or a local supermarket or a Woolies or a Coles, whatever it might be, people aren't always standing there with an apple or a lean cut of steak or whatever it is going, how does this map to my values? You know, because they're busy and there's all this type of stuff going on. So it's a little bit more intuitive, but they want to feel good. And I think that there are ways, all of us, 1,600 people here uh, over these two days, which is just incredible. We're the types of folks that, that are in these positions of privilege that have the opportunity to go, all right, if people want to feel good about their purchases, if they want to have tasty, healthy, fresh, clean, green food, then we've got to work really hard. And we are, we are, that's really important. We've got to work really hard and continue working hard to get them that. So how can people become more connected to their food? If you look at the behavioural sciences literature, education itself doesn't seem to do that much to change behaviour. It's really important. Knowledge is, is, is powerful, but it doesn't seem to directly cause behavioural change. So I think one of the things that we've got to try and do is we've got to tell more powerful stories. Not many humans are like, let me dive into the statistics. Like, we love stories and we connect to stories because they're emotive and we can then develop empathy and compassion for other humans that are actually just like us. You know, just because I live in Melbourne doesn't mean I can't feel what someone feels that's producing food in far north Queensland. You know, there's still a human that has a similar life experience in many ways to me. So I think we can tell better stories. 
And we can do that in lots of different ways. We can do that on our food packaging. We can do that through radio and TV and different media outlets. We have to do all of the system science stuff and earth science and soil science, all of these different complex things we got to do. But I think we got we got to get better at telling relatable, compelling and, and kind of like hopeful stories. And I am seeing this space change more and more. I'm picking up things from my supermarket and getting a little bit of that story about the company and product. When it comes to advertising, how are we going to know what's authentic, what they claim to do is what they are doing? Because I I guess it's just going to be overwhelming for customers when it comes to trying to decide what's best for them and their families. And it, it already is. Like, so, so our brains haven't changed much in a couple hundred thousand years, which is sort of crazy to think about. We get anywhere between, depending on what source you cite, 6,000 and 50-odd thousand messages telling us we're consumers a day. And so you, you then ask, well, Nate, are you saying give people more info? Like, it's just going to make it harder. I, I don't think we can do that. But I think there's a process that we have to go through to get to the point where it's it's no longer relevant to do that. So at the moment, it's really important for brands to tell their story and to try and differentiate because it's not its not normal. It's becoming more normal, but it's not normal. That's Nate Kinch speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris, speaking about food shopping trends at the Evoke Ag Conference, which was held in Adelaide this week. Well, if you've been shopping, you know, you know the price of beef. But there's no party like a beef party. That's how some have described the last year of record prices. Farmers have been getting the best prices in history, which may be good for them, but perhaps not so great for consumers. Meg Powell spoke to Robobank Senior Proteins Analyst Angus Gidley-Baird, who says those prices have dropped off. Yeah, so, I mean, the basic message from me is we... We're moving into a period now. We've had, we've, we've effectively had a great party. We've had wonderful seasons, very favourable prices, record prices. Now we're we're probably coming off the back of that party. Things are going to be a little bit more average, more normal. Um, we've got a weaker global economic environment. We're expecting some of that consumption to ease off, some of the demand to ease off as as consumers start to check what they're spending their more limited household budgets on. Um, but at the same time, we're expecting to see domestic supplies pick up. You know, we're continuing to see the herd rebuild and the flock rebuild. So increase in, in numbers of lambs and sheep being slaughtered, increased number of cattle being slaughtered. So, you know, balancing it out with a softer demand and increased supply in the market, we're expecting prices to be softer this year. Uh, most of them were at records at the beginning of last year. Um, but that being said, too, we don't see a lot of downside to the market. So we're expecting prices, land prices and cattle prices to remain about where they are and sort of track where they are for the next 12 months. Okay, so they've come off the boil a little bit. Yes. But you're not expecting a a bigger drop? No, no. I think we've probably done their run. They are at more sustainable levels now. So judging, you know, the fundamentals in the market of where our supply volumes are and where our export markets are, um, what the seasonal conditions are and what the herd and flock inventory are, the models say that prices should be around about where they are at the moment. And, I mean, they came off quite a long way. Cattle prices came off 15 20% last year. Land prices did something similar. So it was quite a big drop, uh, particularly in the second half of last year. It was a bit of a shock to the system, dropping so dramatically, but, you know, it was probably something that, that should have been expected. What kinds of things did you hear from farmers, your clients, when, when this drop happened? 
hopefully those that have read our reports were realising that yeah, it's, it's actually the, the drop that we've been talking about for the last eight months has come to fruition, but there's obviously a degree of concern because once prices start heading down, it's like, well, where are they going to stop? And for a lot of those people, it's either I've got stock that I need to sell, um, do I sell them now, or is the market going to f- and you know is the market going to fall further, or do I hold onto them with the risk that the market might fall? So there's that sort of degree of panic out there. Plus those that have bought stock in are looking at it, saying, "Well, I paid this much for them, and now I'm selling them into a market that's 10, 15 percent cheaper. You know, I'm going to have to really make up the difference in weight gain. And can I do that? Have I got the feed available to do that? So yeah, there, there's obviously concern out there, but you know. Speaking to those in the last couple of months since we've had some of these drops, I think most of them recognise that we were at overinflated prices and that where we are at the moment is probably a, a good level if this is where it's going to stop. I suppose those prices, may, it has a cost at this end. Maybe they've bought things at a, one price and have to sell at a cheaper price. But was there a, an advantage to having those high prices for a while? Were farmers able to do things uh, they might not have otherwise? Definitely. I mean, you look back in history and we, we haven't really seen a period like that, um, you know, in, in our history that effectively... You know, 20 prices started going up at the beginning of 2020 when the seasons broke, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, and very dramatic change in season there. Um, and suddenly everyone chasing very limited livestock numbers and prices just jumped. And But they not only jumped then, they continued to go up through the course of 2020 and into 2021 and to the beginning of 2022. We, we haven't really ever seen, you know, 24, 26 months of price increase month on month going up continuously like that. Um, so it was quite a phenomenal period. Most people were able to get at least one or two cycles of livestock through the system and, and you know, the subsequent year they were selling for even more. So, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great windfall for the industry. So what can we expect for next year from a consumer retail point of view? Yeah, well, from, a, from an Australian beef consumer point of view, uh, we're going to have an increased herd, we're going to have increased supplies coming onto the market. With some of those softer global markets and cattle prices that are... 15, 20% below the where they were at this time last year, um, you know, that should feed through into the system. We shouldn't see, a lot. I'm not expecting to see a lot more upside in retail prices. You generally don't see downside in retail prices. <laughs> Unfortunately, but, no. <laughs> um, similarly for lamb, we've got the potential to hit record lamb slaughter numbers and lamb production this year. So that supply on the market is going to mean that we haven't got that upward pressure on retail prices so for the consumer it's probably a good thing you know beef prices and and lamb prices should remain where they are there are a few things on the horizon that are looking positive you know positive signals out of china with ministers meeting and you know maybe we you know the chinese economy recovers and some of that demand comes back in which would would help lift the market Um, from a beef point of view we've got the u.s herd that that is going through a massive liquidation We'd expect sometime in the next two years that'll start to have a positive influence on the Australian market as they have a shortage in supplies and start searching for more more beef from Australia, but also meaning less competition into our key markets of Japan and South Korea. So there are some some upsides on the horizon, possibly, you know, over the course of the next two years. And at the same time, not a lot of downside really at the moment. That's Rabobank analyst Angus Skidley-Baird saying, while the last year has been fantastic for the meat industry, a drop in prices has come, which makes it far more sustainable and is really good for consumers who hopefully won't be seeing their beef products 
go up in price for a, a while. So record prices for beef, and let's find out what farmers have been doing with the extra money. John Paulson runs beef cattle on King Island and at Nabola in the northeast of the state. He's seen prices rise and fall a lot over his lifetime and says some farmers took advantage of the good season. We have five and a half, five and a half thousand acres of land on King Island, probably um, three or four thousand head of cattle. And uh, pretty similar here in Tasmania, we have three and a half thousand acres of freehold. Um, lease the wind farm at Cape Portland, run uh, 1,500 breeders up there. And uh, so breeders, not fattening? Yes, we run the, run the breeders in Cape Portland. They come back to our property at Nabola, freehold property at Nabola for, for, um, for fattening or backgrounding, whichever we choose, yeah. Now, I just want to ask about the last 12 months and these record beef prices that we've been seeing. How has that impacted you in operations such as yours? It's a pretty large one. Yeah, look, it's been very good. Um, we've been around long enough now it won't last forever, so we got in and did a bit of infrastructure work with the extra money we had and put a little bit aside as well, and that just at the moment looks like a probably good good idea. Cattle prices are falling a bit, and interest rates, which are a big thing to anyone, are rising dramatically. Too dramatically. Too dramatically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, is that something that you heard a lot of people doing, sort of paying down debts, building, investing in sheds and infrastructure sort of things? Look, I think the ones who are being sensible about it, yes, it's what the, most people talked about for sure, yeah, for sure, for sure. Already the prices have stepped off the boil a little bit, they've dropped down and over the next 12 months they might go back a little bit more but stay fairly steady. What does that mean for you? Look, I'm confident we'll still be um, on, on the right side with the budget. Uh, it might be just a little bit lumpy in the meantime, but it's probably like a lot of things, it'll probably fall further than it should and then find a new level. Um, but yeah, we should be able to handle that um, quite okay, I'm sure, yeah. Are there people that, um, maybe you yourself even, who have bought uh, cattle at a certain price and then are a bit concerned they're going to be sold for a bit cheaper when they fatten them up? Yeah, for sure. Look, we're basically a breeding and fattening operation, so that um, sort of doesn't affect us very much. But yes, a lot of people who just uh, fatten would have um, paid more for the cattle and maybe they'll get for them in six or eight months' time when they're fat. Having said that, they'll buy the next lot at a lot better rate. I'm sure the fatteners have been in the game for a long time uh, prepared for it. Don't like to see it happen, but they know it's going to happen and we'll just continue on and they'll be right, yeah. How long have you been a farmer? Um, I'm a third generation. Right, yeah. forever. <laughs> forever, yeah. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen prices like this? No, no, not like this, no. This has, this has been fantastic, yeah. Seen good price, but never like this, no. It's been fantastic. Mm. It has, yeah. But yeah, look, it's been good, though. It gives us a chance to get in and um, they put a bit of money aside and get a bit of infrastructure work done, yeah. It is, it's always interesting times, I guess, but it's, it, we... Ha you spoke about 12 months ago, we had um, record high cattle prices, we had record low interest rates and inputs were about where they have been. Well now we have um, falling cattle prices, rising interest rates and rising inputs. So yeah, we've just got to be keep our one on the ball, that's for sure, yeah. It really does swing up and down, doesn't it? It does, yeah, pretty quickly it appears. <laughs> and that's something farmers see a lot, I guess. Oh yeah, I've seen it all, all, uh, before through my uh, lifetime and we'll see it again. Um, my favourite saying is we have to deal with what's in front of us. Don't complain about it, just deal with it, yeah. <laughs> how do you, um, just curious, out of curiosity, how do you prepare for that? Because obviously most farmers will know, oh, this is a good season, but next season could be awful. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Everyone does it differently. Here in Tasmania, our seasons are fairly regular. And look, we're from Queensland originally. That's why we came to Tasmania. And it, it is a lot easier to... Um, 
to forecast ahead because of the, the seasons. Even though people say it's a, it's a bad one, it's not bad like you in Queensland in those places, no. It's pretty good. No big droughts. No so. big droughts, no. No big floods. I mean, we have floods, but not big floods, no. Mm. No, it's much easier in Tasmania to, uh, to budget and predict, yeah. Certainly not big floods on King Island anyway. No, That's no big floods on King Island, no. Good. No, King Island beef farmer John Polson telling Meg Powell the record prices over the last year have allowed some farmers to invest in infrastructure and also pay down some debts. And unlike his attitude, if there's a problem there, just deal with it. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Okay, we've uh, been hearing predictions of where the beef price will go and uh, what farmers have been doing with the prices they've received over the last 12 to 18 months. Let's head out to the livestock markets and see what the prices are actually doing with Richard Bailey. How are you going, Richard? Travelling well, Tony. Travelling well. In for a couple of warm days, I think, but uh, all good. And uh, was it pretty warm uh, at uh, Power Rennie yesterday? First of the wiener sales. Yeah, first of the wiener sales yesterday. Um AWN uh, yarded at all just over two twenty one hundred cattle and there's some very good cattle amongst these. Uh, almost the whole shed, well the whole shed were were steers, but uh, they there were some you know there were some really nice weaners and some room, some very good weight in some of the in some of the yearlings, you know, like uh, really and the steers sold pretty well. I thought um, probably pretty similar to mainland quotes uh, yearling steers sort of. You know, there were some really big bullocky blokes made up to 2,600, I think, or whatever. But a lot of the yearling steers, sort of 1620 to $2,000 in that sort of bracket, 400 cents a kilo. And then the rest of them anywhere from 1320 to 1820, which was about 440 cents a kilo, which is looking at the uh, interstate markets fairly similar to that. A few yearling heifers made anywhere from 1300 to 1820, 340 to 370 cents a kilo. Then when we got into the wieners, I thought the steer wieners sold pretty well. A lot of steer wieners, the light ones, over 500 cents, but a lot of the others, anywhere from 450 to 470 cents a kilo, which meant that the better ones, 1460 to 1660, uh, medium weights, 1260 to 1520, and lighter, 1120 to 1360 dollars a head. Over in the heifers, these were cheaper. Uh, unfortunately, these and some of the lighter ones were considerably cheaper. The better ones, eleven fifty to twelve sixty. Medium weights, nine hundred to thirteen forty. They worked out around that three thirty to three forty cents a kilo. And then lighter heifers, six hundred to a thousand and twenty. They worked out around three hundred and sixty-five cents a kilo. Um, they're probably another 100 to $150 back on where they were a week ago at the store sale. So a little bit disappointing on the heifers, but I thought the steers held up extremely well. A lot of these cattle, um, a lot of these AWN cattle come from the southern part of the state, and by gee, they were in terrific order. So obviously a lot of parts of down there have had, um, you know, are having a pretty good time season-wise. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's... Uh... I suppose it's a bit uh, bare in, in parts of the Midlands and parts of areas oh, yeah. like that. but um, yeah. yeah, but you've got to remember now, we're getting near the end of February, so we, we're going to get a little bit dry. The boys up the the northwest coast or more of the far northwest buyers there than we've seen for a while, and they're all saying that, look, they've had a terrific season, but it's just starting to get a little bit dry, but um, they'll be right. They'll, 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 soldier, they'll soldier on. Okay. When's the next one to sale? 
Right, we miss a week, and then we go four weeks in a row. Okay. Um, so... I don't know, there's probably um, around 10,000, 12,000 calves to be sold in those four weeks. And then we've got a couple of sales in April. But, yeah, so that's uh, that's to look forward to, those four weeks in a row. Mm. Um, the other thing probably to take note of here, we've got some bull sales coming up in March. So if you're looking for bulls, it's time to get into that planning mode and uh, start working out how many you want and where are you going to go? Because um, there's a very good variety around. Um, there'll be a, a, a nice number of bulls to pick from. Okay. What are you hearing about cattle prices on the mainland? Um, all are fairly similar, Tony. Um, cattle market probably improved a couple of three cents in some markets and in other markets was about similar. Like at Mortlake, uh, the better cows are averaging just over 300 cents and at Butterwatha, um, which is on the river, up on the river, they were averaging just under 300 cents. So you get that sort of, um, yeah, just a little bit of variance there. Um, not many yearlings make over 400 cents, but I did note that last Friday at Ballarat, at the store sale they had there, that they reported that the feedlots were back in the market and that pushed that market up. Uh, anything up to $100 a head. So that was probably, probably pretty good news because the feedlotters have been out of the market for three or four months. So interesting times. And maybe the reports that were near the bottom of the market is uh, are correct. We'll wait and see. Yep, okay. Now, uh, lamb and sheep. Lamb market is very similar to where it's been for the last three or four weeks. The really good lambs are making anywhere from sort of seven eighty to eight twenty cents a kilo. There are odd sales above that or below that um, but the, the second quality lambs are getting still getting hit in the head uh, they're down you know 650 to 700 cents a kilo and a lot of them are still in the wool and so they're taking a little bit of uh, a little bit of moving and a lot of them are going back to the paddock but the good quality lambs are still selling exceptionally well on the back of not very big numbers you know the Victorian numbers particularly are historically low for this time of the year even at Wagga yesterday you know they're good numbers but the market held up very well for good lambs. Mutton's a different different kettle of fish altogether. That's that showed some improvement over the last two weeks, and this week it came back again. And there's a lot of mutton sort of only making 250 to 300 cents a kilo. On by Monday night, Tuesday night, I think it was the mutton indicator was at 317 cents, but there were a lot of sheep that were selling underneath that. I can tell you. Um, the only probably good news in that is that the kill the mutton killers up. Um, anywhere from 25 to 35%, depending where you went and which state you're in uh, on this time last year, which is good news because, obviously, it's getting rid of a fair heap of sheep. So, um, anyway, wait and see on that one, but uh, yeah, landmark is still totting along pretty well. It's surprising most, I think. I don't think there's any doubt there's going to be more lambs around sometime in the next few months, but we have been saying that for a couple of months also. You have. All right, Richard. Have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey will be back with us next Wednesday to check the latest Power Renner sale. Don't forget uh, to visit our ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of great stories there, and you can make a comment or two if you wish. And also lots of... uh, Lots of great stories on the ABC Rural online page as well. Just put ABC Rural into your search engine. And we will have a podcast of today's program up for you very shortly. That's our Country Hour for the week. Have a great weekend. Happy and safe weekend. We'll catch you after midday Monday.